hey, you guys had a ton of questions. Is that not true, Pastor Scott? Way too many questions. <laughs> y'all, better, y'all better bring a snack, ask Mr. Todd to go ahead and make something extra for us, because we're going to be here a long time if we answer all those questions. Uh, we'll but, see, man. But we're going to try to get through some of these well, questions tonight. Whichever ones I can't answer, you're going to have oh, to answer. Oh, yeah. So, I'm, I'm totally ready for that, man. <laughs> The, the, the Sunday school answer was always Jesus, right? You That's just right. went with Jesus. That's right. So uh, I, I've got a few questions that I, uh, I was going to ask Pastor Scott. First of all, let me just say, uh, I'm so excited to be doing this because... Uh, this is not an exercise in stump the pastor. I don't. I don't feel like that's what this is, and it's certainly not. I'm asking the question, so you. Okay. <laughs> I'm just. Kidding. We'll see. We'll see what happens. No, it's definitely not. But what what I love is uh, I I was able to uh, minister to young adults for a, a lot of years, and they have an endless supply of questions, and what I always told them is this is how God made you. He made you to ask questions. Absolutely. If we're not asking questions, we're not inquisitive enough about this amazing book called the Bible that, that we have been gifted. Absolutely. And so you should have questions. And some of them are a lot of fun and some of them are very deep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited just yeah, we, at the prospect that people are, are asking questions because that tells me that, that your heart is beating and that you're passionate about God's word. Yeah, so, absolutely. Amen. And these are great questions. They I mean, really are. Yeah. Very, very good questions. I mean, probably the one that we got the most, it was probably, I would say, on up there in the, close to 100% of the time was, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> That's the question everybody keeps asking. I think you asked that question. Maybe I did. I think, Maybe it's I, a bil- did. I think it's a billy button is what it is. <laughs> hey, I like that. <laughs> no, for real. When did God create Adam? For real. For real. When okay. did God create Adam? Did Adam have a belly button? Yeah, yeah. Did he? Did Adam have a belly button? Okay, how many of you say yes? How many of you say no? How many of you say I have no idea? <laughs> All right. And you want to know what I think? Well, I was going to see if. If uh, we could throw that picture up of Adam's belly button that they took. There's you know? a picture of Adam's belly button? Do we want to see this? <laughs> I, I don't know if we want to see No, I want to know what you think. You I, want to know, I, think? I, want, I want to know your... Well, okay. There's nothing in Scripture that's definitive about this. This is not a, uh, you know, depending on what you believe, you go to heaven or hell type of question. Right, okay? of course. Some of you are thinking, you might assume that I'd say no, because belly buttons are... Uh, the evidence of where there was once an umbilical cord and Adam was a direct creation. He was not born. Therefore, Adam did not have a belly button. Surely, Pastor Scott would say, no, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And let me tell you why, Billy. I'm interested. All right. When God created everything, it had the appearance of age. Okay. So when he created trees, Do you suppose those were saplings or or seeds that he started with? I think they were fully formed Mm -hmm. trees. Now, if you had cut down a tree in the Garden of Eden, would you have found rings in that tree? I don't know. I, 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 I I wouldn't say it would be against all odds that there would be rings on the inside of a tree. Now, what are, what are rings indicative of? They are indicative of age, right? right Each exactly. ring is, represents a year in the life of that tree. And so here you've got a fully formed tree. It looks like a fully grown tree. Uh, presumably, the rings on the inside of that tree would indicate that it is a mature tree. Right. Adam is a fully formed man. He has the appearance of age. 
Is it beyond the, the realm of possibilities that God would have created Adam with a belly button? I have no idea, but I kind of like the idea that Adam had a, had a belly button. I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can accept that. So there you go. Don't be dogmatic I, about that. Though, absolutely. Right? We don't need to get hung up on that. But when did God create Adam? I heard it was a little before Eve. Are you really trying hard to get me in trouble tonight? <laughs> no. For, uh, all right. So really, the first question, let's go with this. All right. Prophets and apostles, right? You hear a lot, prophets and apostles. What's the difference between the biblical office? This is one of the questions presented. What's the difference between the biblical office and the spiritual gifts? And then I got a follow-up question. There. That is a really good question. So prophets and apostles in the biblical office particularly in the New Testament age. So if you were to go uh, to Ephesians, we're studying Ephesians on Sundays. So if you're not joining us on Sundays, come on down on Sundays and we're walking through Ephesians. But we saw in chapter two, it says the following, and I, I made myself a little note here. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. That's the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the, the office of apostle and prophet in the New Testament, these were the individuals that were selected by God. They had an office in the church and they served as the foundation for the church. Now, how many of you know that when you, when you build a building, you lay the foundation and you build on top of that foundation? Absolutely. Now, do you go back and have to continue to lay that foundation later on? No, foundation is laid. How many times do you lay a foundation? One time. Absolutely. So you don't have to keep laying that foundation. So that tells us that this was a finite office. It was for a temporary period of time. And, and these individuals, prophets and apostles, occupied that office. And they had authority. They had authority as they spoke to the church. They had authority as they wrote <laughs> scripture. Absolutely. And God used them, okay? Mm -hmm. this, this office does not exist today because the foundation has been laid and as far as the writing of scripture is concerned the canon is closed and so we don't have apostles and prophets running around today speaking authoritatively on behalf of God what we do have are we have we have some spiritual gifts and among those spiritual gifts and there are many I believe every Christian has at least one spiritual gift and some of those spiritual gifts uh, include the gift of apostleship and the gift of prophecy. Those are not the same as the office of apostle and prophet in the New Testament sense. They're the outworking of certain giftings that one has. So what is that? What is the gift of apostleship? Apostolos in the Greek, it simply means messenger. That's what it means. And so in that sense, really, all of us are apostles because we all carry the message of Christ, right? But there are some of us that also have the spiritual gift of apostleship. And people who, uh, who have this gift, they are gifted specifically in the area of missions. So a lot of missionaries have the gift of apostleship, meaning they are, they are unafraid to go into situations, go into scenarios, go into regions to carry the gospel. They are able, they're gifted in, in cert, such a way to uh, 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 acclimate to that region, to... Uh, uh, ingratiate themselves in a culture mm -hmm. to learn the, the customs, the language for the purpose of promoting the gospel, making disciples. That's the gift of apostleship. Gift of prophecy, uh, similar in that it's, it's, it's uh, an expression of boldness. 
Uh, an Old Testament prophet is someone that heard directly from God. They would engage in a couple different types of prophecy. One is called predictive prophecy. So they would prophesy in the sense of they would, they would, they would speak of something yet to occur and they would predict, and this is what's going to happen, and it would happen. That's predictive prophecy. Most of the prophecy that we talk about is predictive. When we teach on prophecy, as we're going to do after Easter, very excited about that. Uh, We're going to start a series, Understanding Bible Prophecy. Cannot wait. Um, That is mostly the kind of prophecy we're going to talk about, okay? I don't believe that that sort of prophecy is occurring today, all right? The other type of prophecy that was engaged in is not predictive, it's called didactic prophecy. Didactic prophecy is when someone merely speaks forth, they repeat what God has said. And so in the case of a biblical prophet, God would speak to them and they would speak to the people. This is what the Lord has said, usually it's a command of some sort. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, we are not getting fresh new revelation from God that he has never uttered before in some sense. Uh, We might be prompted by the Spirit, but it's going to be along the lines of His revealed Word. He's not ever going to add to His Word. He's not going to give us something new. He's certainly not going to contradict what He has already said. But for for me, when I get up on Sunday and I open the Bible and I teach what is in the Bible, I say, this is what God says, and I read Scripture. When you open your Bible and you read Scripture, you are speaking forth what God has said. And so in that sense, you are prophesying. And so someone who has that gift is someone who is able to do that with boldness, with clarity. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a proclamation type of gift. Those are the differences. It really is just different in terms of their authority as it pertains to the church. Yep. Does so that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense to me. And you, and you answered that, how do these roles work today? You kind of uh, you know, spoke to that yeah. in the terms of their spiritual gifts that we possess today, but those those uh, prophets yeah. and apostles that were or existed back in Jesus' time, that's kind of that. that uh, and, and I would add, that was a very limited group during the early church, during the establishment of the church. Number one, you had the 12. Right. You had the 12. You had Peter and company. So the 12, which eventually included Matthias. He replaced right. Judas. Judas uh, yep. And then in addition to those, now they were unique in their authority. They were known as the 12. Mm-hmm. In addition to those guys, you had some other apostles the Apostle Paul, special pro- apostle to the Gentiles. Right. You had uh, James, the brother of Christ. Mm-hmm. You had Barnabas. Mm-hmm. You had Epaphroditus. You had Titus. You had some others that are, that are singled out as apostles. Right. Uh, and you had a few others that were called prophets. Agabus, uh, also Barnabas, was a prophet. If you were an apostle, you met very specific criteria. You had to be obviously chosen by the Holy Spirit. You had to be someone that, that evidenced your authority through signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. You, you were able to perform signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. That was another uh, sign of that. But chiefly, you had to have been an eyewitness yep. to the risen Christ. Yep. Yep. And we know that Paul was. Right. Okay? So that, that is naturally going to be a very limited group right there. And so when that last generation, uh, when the last person in that generation of apostles <clears throat> died... The book closed. Yep. Okay. Yep. But we, we still have the gifts exactly. of apostleship and prophecy. So, right. does that, that, that make that, sense? That makes sense to me. Explained it well. Good. Let's move on to the next question because we're only scratching the surface right now. Of <laughs> what all time these. are we done yet? All right. Uh, oh my goodness. Uh, so, did God predestine some? Oh man. <laughs> we'll go go in pretty hard right here. Did God predestine some, but not all? Oh, 
and I knew that we'd have some Calvinistic uh, content in tonight too. So predestination, well, that's a hot potato, huh? Predestination, election. If you don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, if maybe you, If you don't that. know, yeah. yeah. So when we talk about predestination we're, or election is all, often a word used interchangeably with that. You're talking about the concept that God specifically chose you for salvation, okay? That if you are born again, it is because you were chosen by God. You were predestined. You were elected for salvation, okay? So if you're a Calvinist, this is one of the five key points that mm-hmm. you believe in. Right. Unconditional election. Mm-hmm. It's, through, it's through no action, no work of yep. your own, right? It's only through the choosing of God. So is that a biblical concept is, is the first part of that question. You, you cannot deny that predestination is in the Bible. Yeah. It is in the Bible. Now, what's the difference? Predestination election, is that the same thing? They're off, there's not much difference, I'll tell you that. I think predestination is the broader term. It can apply to a lot of different things in mm-hmm. Scripture. People are predestined for a number of things, not just salvation. Okay, Israel was predestined as a people. Right to be the people through whom Messiah would come. Uh, David was predestined to be king of that nation eventually over Saul. And so you got different scenarios. Election is really more the term that that pertains to salvation. But Mm -hmm. is it biblical? Yes, yes. Some people try to say, well, predestined, that just means that God foreknew. God had foreknowledge. He knew who was gonna be saved. He didn't choose them. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice try, but uh, I would say that those are two different words. Uh, foreknowledge, foreknew, comes from uh, uh, prognosko, prognosko in the Greek. Uh, pro is for, mm-hmm. knowledge, gnosis, gnosis. And so foreknowledge, and so we've got a verse here, Romans 8, 29, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, prognosko, yep. He also predestined. And predestined is prorizo. And that means to determine beforehand. So are you chosen, if you are a believer, are you a believer because you are chosen by God to be a believer? According to scripture, yes. Yes, you are. Now, here's the rub. This is where people struggle. Does this preclude my will? Do I have anything to do with it whatsoever in terms of my will? Not works, but by believing, uh, let's, let's put a pin in that. Right. Let me address the, the second part of your question. Does God ever predestine anybody for hell? I've just established he predestined some for heaven. Does he predestine anybody for hell? Nowhere in scripture do you see people predestined for hell. Nowhere in scripture does that appear. Uh, you cannot definitively state that. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. If he chose some for damnation, that would be the place he would include that. But you mm-hmm. don't see that anywhere. Some people bring up Judas. You may have wondered about that. Uh, Jesus refers to Judas, calls him a son of perdition, son of destruction. It would have been better if he'd never been born, yeah. right? Yeah. So people point to that. They go, well, what about Judas? Right. He, he was, he was, he was Ill, you know, chosen, mm to do what he did. And so therefore, he was a son of destruction. That's what it says. Would have been better if he'd never been born. Maybe God chose him to go to hell. Hmm. Well, as as in our Ephesians study, what did we learn in in the early part of Ephesians? We we get things said of us. In Ephesians 2, Paul (laughs) describes all Christians, how we were once uh, sons of disobedience, Mm -hmm. children of wrath, 
Those sound like pretty permanent terms, don't yeah. they? And so similar term is used of Judas. And so that alone is not enough to say that, that he was chosen by God and that he was hardwired for hell. Mm-hmm. And I, I can say this. I think that Judas, it was personally responsible for his actions. Absolutely. He was absolutely guilty of what he chose to do. He was in uh, full control of his faculties, at least until we see in that upper room at the Last Supper, what does it say? It says, and then Satan entered him. Mm-hmm. And so until that moment, we know for sure, uh, Judas was able to determine his actions, that he chose to betray Christ. Uh, it was simply better for him that he'd never been born because of uh, the, the, the route that he chose yeah. and, and the, the repercussions of that. So obviously, I've kind of given a little... Uh, clue. Do I believe in free will? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I believe that we are chosen by God. Mm. And I also believe that the Bible, in addition to teaching that, I believe it also teaches that man has a will. And I will show you. I just want to share a couple things with you. Here's what Matthew 10, 32 says. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. You've got an if then there. If you acknowledge me, yeah. I acknowledge you. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Interesting. Hmm. John three twenty nine. the next day, Jesus, excuse me, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the... Elect? Nope. The world. That's all unbelieving. Now, why would he take away the sin of all the unbelieving if he only chose some of us Mm -hmm. for salvation? Acts 17.30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a command. Why would he give you a command you couldn't honor, right? Uh, Acts 18.4, every Sabbath he reasoned. This is speaking of Paul. Paul's habit was to reason in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Why waste your time, Paul, if it's just we're hardwired for one or the other? Mm-hmm. Romans ten thirteen. everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone? Everyone, not just the elect? Second uh, Corinthians 5, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. To implore someone, you are, you are trying to appeal to yeah. them. There's got to be will there. Uh, and then there's this, and there's more. Guys, we could be here all day. I could read you stuff about the sovereignty of God. I could read you stuff about the free will of man. Yep. Uh, I'll leave you with this. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Yep. Yep. And if God's Perfect. sovereign and his will is always done, okay, I, I, I do believe that man has a will. I think that the fact that he... His ultimate purpose for us is that we worship him. Can you worship without a will? Or are you a little robot? Do robots worship? I think not. So does it sound like I'm walking the fence a little bit that I believe in the sovereignty of God and the will of man? It probably does because there is a tension on this issue. I'm okay with that tension. Yeah. I'm okay with that tension. I do not have to be hardline one way or the other, okay? I'm certainly no Arminian, all right? He loves me, he loves me not. Calvinist has the tulip. Oh, they're tulip, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Calvin has the tulip. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. that's right. That's good, yeah. Billy. Yeah. So, there you go. All right, so that makes sense. I mean, we would be robots, basically. We wouldn't have the free will to come in here and worship and express our love toward God, relate to him, yeah. communicate, just like Judas had a free will to choose. 
you know, and Jesus said, whatever you choose to do, go and do quickly. Yeah. You know, he chose, he chose his actions. We have the ability to choose our actions. How, how does that all work, <laughs> folks, that God chooses us and we still choose him? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, and any, let me just tell you something. Anybody that says they got that figured out, they are either lying or they think they've got it figured out yeah. and they are incorrect. Run. This is way beyond the scope. Run from them. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I look, I've got some dear, dear friends who are hardline Calvinists, um, you know, and I, I, I count them as allies. I think they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't have any beef with them, not looking to tear down their belief system whatsoever, but I, I just read the scripture in such a way that it's, it's, it's a broad thing. I don't think for one moment it takes away from the sovereignty of God to acknowledge that we have a will. Yeah. Well, and I, I think in regards to that, you know, um, with that free will, I, you know, I, I'm always wrestling with that tension of where does pride come into that, yeah. you know, and keep us from seeing, you know, I think of Second Corinthians 4, Satan, the God of this world, is blind to the mind, so they don't even see yeah. the glorious light of the, of the gospel. So what part of it is we don't allow ourselves to be changed by God. We don't right. open ourselves up. We're like, no, I want to run my life and do my own thing. Yeah. And that basically restricts sure. us and controls us to... Let, and, and let me give you one us. more thing. Let me give you, on, the, on the whole concept of election, every time the Bible refers to the elect, it's a plural. Every mm. time. The elect is a collective. Who are the elect? The church. We are the elect of God. Mm-hmm. So if it's always referred to in the plural, you, you don't have specific instances where that word is used, elect, of an individual. So uh, that tells me, at least it leaves open the possibility that, that there is some allowance for the will of man to work in hand with the sovereignty of God. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, you then become part of the elect. So I think yep. that that is allowed for in Scripture. I just think there needs to be a lot of grace given on this issue. So don't write people off one way or the other. Yeah, we could spend own. the rest of this time talking about this. And, and we'll go back in and a big old yeah, circle exactly, like this. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right, so let's move on. Uh, speaking of Ephesians 2, I think you talked about this passage uh, back in the, towards the end of January. I think it wasn't the last Sunday in January, but maybe the Sunday before yeah. the last one. But you were in Ephesians 2, and someone asked, Ephesians 2 uh, means to us, what does Ephesians 2, 6 mean to us on earth now? Does made us sit together in the heavenly places, quoting from Scripture, present tense, mean we can envision ourselves in the courtroom of heaven, praising and worshiping God and abiding in him? He's made us sit in the heavenlies with him. Does that verse mean that we can envision ourselves in the throne room of God right now? Why not? Yeah. Why not? (laughs) Anything bad could come from that? No, not at all. Now, understand I'm not advocating that we engage in some sort of astral projection. Right. Okay, I don't want, I'm not saying we're like Luke Skywalker projecting our hologram onto a distant planet or right, something like right, that. Right. But can I picture myself in the throne room of God? Man, I think that we need to have very vivid uh, imaginations when it comes to Scripture because the, pur- the purpose of that is to convey the idea that as Christians, as believers, every blessing, every benefit, all the wealth, all the riches, all the privileges of heaven have been, des- have been desto- bestowed upon us. Now, that is stated as a matter of fact. hmm as a matter of fact, and it's not stated as something that has yet to occur. It is stated as something that has already happened. Now, will we physically one day literally be seated in the heavenlies with Christ? Yes. Are we physically on the earth right now? Yes. 
But so sure is this, it's written as though it's already accomplished. Hmm. And God exists outside of time. He exists in eternity. And so when he looks at us, he sees royalty. He sees us as having these rights and these privileges. We need to always see ourselves the way God sees us. Hmm. And so I think that is that a healthy... Everything. Health. Wouldn't that yeah, change yeah, everything? Yeah, it would change everything. If, you, if we saw ourselves the way God sees us, 100%. Yeah, we'd walk different, talk different, act different, behave different, all those yeah, things. Yeah, I like that question. Yeah, That's very good, good very good. Uh, I don't think I offended anybody with that answer, right? No, no, that was great. Okay. I'm not offended. All right, so. great. Yeah. So uh, next one. When and how was the Saturday Sabbath? All right, so the Saturday Sabbath where the Jewish understood the Sabbath meaning Saturday uh, when and how, I assume this is what they're saying, when and how was the Saturday Sabbath done away with when keeping the Sabbath is a commandment? That's a cool question. Okay, first, first thing I want to say, they said when was the Saturday Sabbath? When was, yeah, that's the specific question, Saturday the Sabbath. Saturday Sabbath. Okay, that's a redundant term because there is no Sabbath but a, but a Saturday for the Jew. Hmm. Okay, so the Sabbath was always, it's the seventh day. It means the seventh day. And so in, the, in, in Hebrew, Shabbat, uh, in Latin, Sabaot. Uh, anybody speak Spanish in here? Sabado? Saturday, right? That comes from Latin, Sabaot. Shabbat is the Sabbath day. It's the seventh day. For the Jew, under the law, this was a day of rest. Anybody been to Israel? Over the Sabbath? You been there over the Sabbath? Okay. I'll, when I went to Israel, I was in a hotel over the Sabbath. And uh, so there, you got to understand, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, it's kind of funny. You're technically not supposed to do any work yeah. on the Sabbath. Now, I, why we would let go of a day like that, I have no idea. Mm. But you're, you're supposed to rest. Now, yeah. in the hotel, the way that that manifested itself is... Um, the elevators were then automated. They had a special Shabbat elevator. And so when, when you wanted to go up a floor, you, had to go, you could not go to the regular elevator. You went to a special Shabbat elevator and you stood there and you waited. And after a few minutes, it would open. And then you would, you'd get on. And then the doors would shut. And then you'd wait. Actually, doors would not shut right away. They would stay open for a few minutes. And you just wait in case somebody else got on. Then they would shut, and then they'd go up one floor. Doors would open. You're not on your floor yet, so you're waiting. And then they would shut again. Wow. And then they'd go up one floor. And this is how it would it's take you an hour to, be on the to get to your floor. room. If you lived on the seven, penthouse, you didn't oh, want the penthouse. Up the creek. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how it works. So Shabbat's the day of written. Now, under the law, the Jews. This was not, when we think of the Sabbath, when she says Saturday, or he or whoever it is, says Saturday Sabbath, they're saying as opposed to Sunday Sabbath. Mm. Uh, folks, Sunday's not a Sabbath. Mm. Sabbath is a Jewish concept. It's not about when you go to church. Right. It's not about when you go to church. It's because people refer to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. No, the only Sabbath that was ever, uh, in terms of a day designated for rest, was Saturday on the Jewish calendar, and it was a day of rest. You could not leave your home. You could not work. You could not cause anyone else to work. It was a day of rest. And so there is no, there is no equivalent of that for the Christian, you understand. And I would go further than that. I would say that the last God-sanctioned Sabbath 
was the Sabbath day that Jesus' body was in that tomb. After that, there are no more days that we call Sabbath because Jesus is now our Sabbath. Hmm. He is our rest. He is our eternal. One day we're going to enter into our rest. That's Mm -hmm. Christ. He is our eternal rest. And so uh, we were, when did that go away? Well, for the Christian, we were never bound to it anyway because it's under the law. Now they say, well, it's one of the Ten Commandments. We keep the Ten Commandments, don't we? You need to rethink the Ten Commandments. Within the Ten Commandments, there are a lot of things that are still true in terms of their uh, moral command through Christ, we are not to commit adultery, we are not to commit murder, we are not to lust, we are not to do all these steal, uh, covet, envy, all this stuff, because Christ reiterates the moral commands of the law in the New Testament. But we are not bound to them because they are law, you understand. We're not Israel. We're the church. We do these things, we obey these things because they are reiterated and commanded by Christ. Christ never commands us to keep the Sabbath. That is not for the Christian. That was for Israel. It was for a specific period of time. Does that make sense to me? Make sense? I'm, I'm following you. I still right. need a Sabbath. Now, Pastor. I will say, do you? You need a Sabbath? Well, you can have Friday off. I'll oh, thank you. Thank you. That'll uh, work. I'll take it. Now, I will say this. Uh, as to when do we worship? When, when do Christians worship? Now, we worship on, on Sunday together. But you know what? You're here on a Wednesday right now. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. That's what Paul says in in, uh, Hebrews. Well, not Paul. It's whoever wrote Hebrews said this. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our command is that we assemble, we gather consistently. And this is what the church has done for centuries. And historically, we've done it on Sunday. Why on Sunday? Well, that was just the day that they chose because traditionally that was the the day that Christ rose from the dead, the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And so that became the day that the Christians uh, gathered to worship on. But there is no command to do it. If we wanted to gather on Tuesday, that would be okay with God. Here's what Paul says, Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Just do it and do it consistently and do it for the right reasons. It's mm, good. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Some people have proposed that doing it the first day of the week is a form of like giving in the sense of I'm offering God the first part of my week. Any merit, it doesn't matter. It's just That's just something. And somebody... I say they should be convinced in their own mind. That's what Paul says. Yep. That's it. All right. So, All right. but we're not mandated to do that. Now, that's when our doors are open. So, if you're a member of this church, that's when we meet. Yep. You show up here on Tuesday, you're going to be by yourself a little bit. So, <laughs> All right. All right. So, next question What does the Bible teach about speaking in tongues? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did you submit this question? Yes. yes speaking no. in tongues. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a popular question. This is a hot topic, I would say, for sure. Uh, what does the Bible teach about speaking in tongues? Uh, there are a couple of, first of all, the word tongues in the Greek, glossalia, uh, uh, glossalia in the Greek. What does it mean? You know what it means? Um, I'm just thinking we need a thing of chips and salsa right here. All these words you're throwing out. I feel like I'm in a restaurant. I just need to just sit around, eat some chips and salsa we talk about. <laughs> I don't know why that came from, but anyway, I don't know what that, <laughs> I don't know what that means. 
Well, glossolia. When you are in. Is this a glossolia? No. That's a, that's a glass, of, glass of Java. Is glass of Java, is. okay. Uh, when you are in a restaurant where there is chips and salsa, you may hear some different glossolia. Oh, okay. Tongues. How's that for a segue? Yeah, there we go. It's full circle uh, right there. It means languages. <laughs> okay. It means languages. Tongues are languages, mm-hmm. all right? So in Scripture, there are two kinds of tongues that are seen. The first time tongues is manifested in the church, day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Christ has already risen, appeared to the disciples, now he has ascended, gone back to the Father. They are in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit comes, indwells them, fills them. They go out. The day of Pentecost is a a holiday, it's a festival, and a Hebrew word is Shavuot, and it commemorates the giving of the Torah, Mm. giving of the law, Mm -hmm. all right? And so historically, traditionally, this is... This, some say this is when Moses comes down from That's Sinai gonna, yeah. with, mm-hmm. with the tablets. Right. It also the has to do with the first time. <laughs> also has to do with the, uh, the harvest. They kind of coincide. But, uh, so that's Shavuot. Pentecost is the Greek word for this. So they come out, and because it's this holy day, you've got Jews from all these different countries, and they're in Jerusalem. And there's just a sea of humanity, ready-made audience, for the gospel. And so Peter and company, they take to the southern steps. They're on the Temple Mount. There are all these Jews. These apostles are filled with the Spirit. And so we, as we've talked about, when you see people filled with the Spirit in the New Testament, what is about to happen? The gospel is about to come out. So they open their mouth and Peter preaches first sermon of the church age to this sea of humanity, all of whom speak different languages, do not understand the, the language of the apostles. And so Peter speaks the gospel and all these different people hear the gospel mm-hmm. in their own language. So what does that tell us? Well, either Peter is speaking their languages or they are hearing it in their languages. Either way, the first manifestation of tongues in the New Testament involves actual human languages. Verbal, uh, official languages, okay? They are not uh, nonsensical to our ears in any sense. They are are literal languages. The second thing we notice is it's for the promotion of what? The gospel. gospel. So it is evangelistic in nature. Mm -hmm. You understand? That's the first manifestation of tongues. Now, there is another tongues, another type of tongues that is seen in Scripture, and this type of tongues is normally what we think of when we think of tongues. Uh, today, when people say, do you speak in tongues? Or they say, you know, I've, I've been to a place where they were speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. What they're referencing is, is, it draws from this other manifestation of tongues in the New Testament. And so Paul, he says this uh, in, um, where, where, where does he say this? He says, uh, though I speak with the tongues of men and yeah. of... Angels. angels. Okay, so when I speak with the tongues of angels. And so there is, a, there is an evidence heavenly. in Scripture that there is a heavenly language. Mm-hmm. There is an angelic tongue right. that Paul speaks in. Mm-hmm. And so this tends to be the kind of tongues that gets a lot of the attention today. And I would say a lot of my charismatic friends mm-hmm. focus on that, on that brand of tongue speaking mm-hmm. more so than anything else. All right? Now... Uh, is that in Scripture? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I will say this. 
When Paul says that, what's he saying? What's his point? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong. I am a clanging cymbal. What's the point of this? He brings it up to say, even though I can speak this way, if I don't have love, I'm the... Predicated on... There's a caution there. Mm-hmm. There's a caution there. In fact, uh, the, the, the passage that deals with that type of tongues, a heavenly language, an angelic tongue, the, the passage that deals with that, that, that most overwhelmingly is 1 Corinthians 14. And it is dominated by cautions. It is dominated by very specific warnings and instructions. Here are some of them. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 2, one speaks in a tongue. He speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Remember what I said prophesies is in this context? It's opening the Bible, opening the scripture, or this way for them, and they prophesy this is what God has said. So he's saying tongues is a thing, but... It's mainly, that, that type of tongues is for self-edification. Prophesying is for the edification of the body, right. of the body. So he seems to hold that up, prophesying as superior to speaking in tongues. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay? Yeah. Kind of hard to ignore the, the warning there. Yeah. Um, so he's de-emphasizing it. Mm-hmm. And what that implies to me is that it was instrumental, that tongues were instrumental in the early goings of the church, that God used it for revelatory purposes, for uh, communicating the gospel clearly. But as the church began to spread, as it began to grow, see, by now he's into, he's into Asia Minor, he's into Greece. This is a letter to the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're outside of Israel now. Right. Tongue speaking had perhaps gotten a little out of hand. Mm. It had gotten a little out of hand. So there are warnings here, okay? Mm-hmm. He's not forbidding it, but there are some be carefuls right, right here. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Read and speak the word. Mm-hmm. And do not, forbid, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order, Okay. And so you've got instructions in, in 1427. If anyone speaks in tongue, let there only be two or three at the most. Mm. So there's order there, each in turn, so you don't have a room full of people. Just randomly. Going willy-nilly yep. here. Mm-hmm. And let someone interpret. interpret. Yep. And I got to tell you, that doesn't happen all that often. No. Uh, services I've been in, I've been in some. I don't know if Same. that surprises you, but I've been I, in them. I have too. I've been on staff at churches mm. where this was happening so I've been in these services, and I've also watched them on television and the internet, mm-hmm. as, as have many of you. And i got to say, more often than not, these guidelines are not being followed. Yeah. And so that's in violation of Scripture, if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be careful. Now, are tongues still happening today? This kind of tongues. Is this still happening today? Uh, there is a brand, of, there's a, a, cla- a group of people that call themselves cessationists. They say tongues have ceased. Tongues have ceased. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that I can go there. I don't think that I can say miracles have ceased. Yeah. I think I would have to say that God is God. He can do whatever he wants. But if you're, you just gotta, uh, you gotta keep it in its proper decorum, right? Mm-hmm. And you gotta understand that uh, if, if you're claiming that God is speaking in tongues through you for the purpose of brand new, fresh revelation, 
uh, au contraire, you're not an apostle. That age mm. is closed. Mm. And so it had better be for a different purpose. Mm-hmm. And I would highly emphasize the first manifestation of tongues for the promotion of the gospel over any other to manifestation. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So that's, that's probably that's all I got on that. All right? It sounds good to me. I, I understand follow you completely. What about slain in the spirit? <laughs> Let's just go there. Let's just jump right into that, too, <laughs> since we're going down this route. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the term slain in the Spirit is not in the Bible. You don't see that. Now, neither is Trinity, okay, to be fair. Yeah. But the concept of the Trinity is. Is the concept for being slain in the Spirit in Scripture? Uh, most of the time when people uh, support that biblically, they say, well, and they point to... Uh, they point to uh, John in Revelation. He encounters the risen Christ and he falls down on his face mm. as though dead. Mm-hmm. Um, in Matthew 17, you got the disciples. They're on the mount uh, where the transfiguration is happening and they fall down. You've got prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel. When they encounter the Lord or have, you know, have some kind of revelatory thing, they fall down on mm-hmm. their face. Mm-hmm. And so people point to that and they say... There is a major difference between those encounters, those instances, and what is commonly regarded as, as being slain in the spirit today. Mm-hmm. So most of the time today when someone is slain in the spirit, uh, someone else is uh, touching them or not, you don't have to do it. <laughs> okay. uh, there's no, I didn't do anything there. Um, yeah. They touch need them. To catch me. They gesture toward <laughs> yeah. them. You know, I've seen guys blow on people, yeah. throw their jacket at them, they mm-hmm. fall over, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing like that in Scripture, all right? I just want to say there's no parallel there. Um, if you're looking for that, that is a phenomenon of the last, you know, century, mm-hmm. maybe a little over that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is it, is it authentic? Look, I, I am not one to, to call out people as frauds if right. I don't know yeah. But I want you to know there's no parallel in Scripture for that. These instances where guys are falling down are not doing so because somebody else knocked them down mm-hmm. by power. Right. They have encountered God, God in some right. way, and they don't fall backward. I, I, Very that's what interesting. I was say. Yeah, yeah, no. I was thinking the same it's thing. It's a reverence. Yep. It's a reverential yep. thing. Mm-hmm. They're on their face. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. there's no, I've lost my faculties. I've, right. I'm, I'm in a trance. I'm unconscious. You just don't. You just don't see that. So I, let, me just, let me just caution you. If you're seeking an experience like that to validate or authenticate your faith, that's a misuse of your time. We're yeah. not directed to do that, okay? As your pastor, just want to tell you that. Yep. All, right. all right. That's all I have to say. All right. Next question. Mark 16 says, these signs will follow those who believe and goes on to speak about casting out demons, speaking in new tongues, laying hands on the sick, et cetera, et cetera. This, this question, this person was wondering why we as Christians are not fully exercising okay. our authority in Christ yeah. to set the captives free in his name. Okay, and I think we've got another question about deliverance in a minute, so I'm not going to go deep yeah. into that. Yeah. Um, but these are all miraculous manifestations. And so they're citing, which verse? Um, Mark 16, the signs will follow those who believe. Okay, let's basically. read that. So here's what Mark 16 says. Uh, he said to them, Christ said, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, signs, okay, very important word, signs, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, and they will 
And don't miss this one. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, so there's two ways to interpret this verse. One, uh, Christ is saying that he's given the Great Commission. He's anticipating the establishment of his church. This reads to me as a prophecy. He's prophesying. Here's something that will come to pass. Okay? And then he describes all of these supernatural things. So one way to read this is that these supernatural instances will accompany the establishment of his church. So that means it's going to happen during the apostolic age, Mm -hmm. the establishment of the church. That's one way to read this. And so if you see this as a prophecy, you could put this in the category of fulfilled prophecy because all of those things happen. You can find it in scripture. People did cast out demons during that time. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, you see this. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They spoke in tongues. Uh, Paul is bit by a serpent, doesn't die. All right? Mm-hmm. Incidentally, a lot of people that are very interested in the ongoing, and this is the second way to interpret it, is that this is a command, and we, we are all, every one of us, commanded mm-hmm. to go forth and co- to continue to do these things. Mm-hmm. That's the other way to read this. I will note, not all the people that are interpreting it that way have nearly as much interest in the picking up of the snakes <laughs> and the drinking and of the, the drinking poison. And the drinking of poison, yeah. Uh, there's some specific things that they're interested in. Uh, I don't see this as an ongoing command for the church. I believe because he calls them signs, and I believe that the signs are things, and you, you see this throughout Scripture, signs accompany when God is doing something new. So the church was new. Hmm. So Christ came in, he walked on water, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he multiplied the Lord, he did all these things. The apostles, same thing, for the establishment of the church. So those who believe were empowered to do this. Again, I think I've already been clear, I don't believe that all miracles have ceased. I have witnessed miracles, okay? And so I think that some of these things do happen today. I just don't think they are commanded. I don't, I don't read a command in there. Mm-hmm. I see a prophecy. I think that prophecy has been fulfilled. And nowhere in our, in our general understanding of the Great Commission, you don't see these yeah. commanded as ongoing ministries. Right. Um, I think that there are times when we will encounter such things. Mm-hmm. Here's my take on miracles. They're called miracles for a reason. They're miracles. They don't happen all the time. They happen miraculously, right. all right? So uh, there will be a time when they will happen all the time, and we won't call them miracles then. We'll call them life, mm. and I believe that that is the next age. Yeah. And so last week, we had a day that was quite warm. You remember that? Yeah. 85? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. yeah. Hot day. Uh, it's March. Some of you are like, welcome to North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is not typical for March, Right? March is a winter month, but we, we will at times have a warm day in March. So we've got, what we, what we have going on is an inbreaking of the spring. Mm. The spring hadn't come yet, mm-hmm. but it has broken into winter. Mm. I believe miracles are an eschatological, how's that for a word? Yeah, a it's one. an eschatological yeah. inbreaking yeah. Uh, of, of something that is going to be commonplace in an age yet to come. It, it happens in the age in which we now live. In between his first and second coming, we will have glimpses of the next age. And those ought to be, we ought to praise God when those things happen. Yeah, and we sure. don't deny that they exist. 
but should we expect that they happen with regularity and should we perceive ourselves to have engaged or, or to be required to engage in them? Uh, no. Yeah. And I think it's a very, very dangerous thing when people say that this, this is to be commonplace because what that does is if you're not doing it, if you're not experiencing it, what are you thinking now? Hmm. What's wrong with me? Right. Am yeah. I really saved? Yeah. Has God really done a work in my life? Yeah. What's going on? Hmm. And so I think it's a very judgmental thing to, to tell someone well, you're expected to do this. And if mm-hmm. you're not doing it, you're not really born again or you're not living in holiness or you're not walking in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, that's not very productive and it's very dangerous in the church. Well, you brought up a good point when you were saying that, talking about the Great Commission. Yeah. Jesus' words were go and make disciples. Yeah. You know, are we doing those things? You know, yeah. baptizing in the name of the Father, yeah. Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these things. Mm-hmm. You know, so those were the things that Jesus emphasized. He never said, you know, perform miracles, you know, uh, while right. you're doing those things. So the Great Commission is clear in, in the emphasis of what we're called to do today. So I follow what you're saying. I don't know if yeah. you want to. I just picked up on that no, when you were I, saying the that Great it, Commission. Look, we, the, our new mission statement reach, is raise. to reach, raise, and release mm-hmm. undeniable followers of Jesus Christ. And, and therein lies the Great Commission. Yeah. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'm with you. And so we want to be about the making of disciples. If we're not making disciples, we're failing the Great Commission. Agreed. And we don't want to distract ourselves from the main thing. Yep. Yeah. Good. All right? Answered. Understood. Along with that, which you alluded to when we were talking yeah. about these, the signs will follow those who believe in Mark yeah. 16. Is deliverance ministry biblical? All right. I love the word deliverance yes even though for some people it conjures strains of (laughs) (laughs) where's our banjo player that's right david (laughs) no but really isn't deliverance a beautiful word it's a beautiful word i don't think that word is used enough it pains me that such a lovely word is associated with the modern uh, practice of what is called hmm. deliverance ministry. Hmm. Yeah. Okay? What is deliverance? Deliverance is salvation. Deliverance is the business of God. Yeah. Deliverance is what he does. He is our deliverer. If you are born again, you've been delivered. Amen. You have been delivered, okay? And so deliverance is salvation, which God has all... When man fell in the garden... Uh, we fell under the curse of sin. Mm-hmm. And we, we became in need of deliverance. And mm-hmm. immediately, God had a plan for our deliverance. Mm-hmm. It was through the seed. It was mm-hmm. through his son, ultimately, Christ, who would lay down his life as a payment for our sin. Mm-hmm. By faith in that payment, we are delivered. Amen. Deliverance is his work. Now, yep. what it has, that term has, has been taken to you, uh, it's been taken to, uh, to refer to people being delivered from demonic power, which I totally believe in that. Hmm. Uh, However, my definition of that is a little more biblical, I I would say. So deliverance ministry uh, seeks to release people from perceived demonic power that may manifest as possession, as uh, attachment, to them or their family that results in economic 
hardship, mm -hmm. physical problems, sickness, disease, depression, and, and any number of maladies that have befallen them, and they identify a lot of groups that are errant will identify any and every negative thing that happens to you as being demonic. And therefore, you are in need of being delivered from those things, okay? And I, I don't believe that that is, that is um, what our focus is to be, all right? Because here's the reality. I believe in demons, 100%. Absolutely. I'm teaching Ephesians right now. We're going to get to Ephesians 6 uh, after Easter. You will hear me teach on demons. I'm going to talk about demons, okay? So I believe in those. I believe in demon possession. I absolutely do. I believe that some people are afflicted by the demonic. I do, all right? Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that you may, as a Christian, you may have an encounter by which you may be called upon to cast a demon out of someone. I believe that that is a possibility. But are, is that a ministry that we are called to intentionally as the church? Well, it, let me broaden your definition of that ministry. If that's what deliverance is, let me broaden your definition of that. Every person that is unregenerate, every person that is unsaved, is in some fashion under demonic influence. Yep. Okay? Before you were born again, you were influenced by demonic powers. Mm -hmm. Now, that was no, that's normally going to be something external. You're going to be influenced from without. You're going to be influenced by the culture. You're going to be influenced by, by television, by movies, by what you listen to, by what you consume, all of that stuff. So, so that is always something that is afflicting the unbeliever, always. Now, there are more intense cases, more in-your-face cases, shall we say, that we have to deal with uh, in a different way. But there are two ways that you deal with the demonic in, in terms of their control over someone. Here's the first way, and I would call this the steady way. This is the standard kind of, kind of steady, uh, uh, normative way that we deal with with. Un, 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 unleashing people from the demonic. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24, he says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape, be delivered from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul is describing someone who has been captured by the devil, who is under the control, under demonic control, and how does he instruct Timothy? Does he say, you know, get him on the ground and start casting yeah. demons out of them mm -hmm. no he says be kind mm -hmm. teach mm -hmm. all right correct okay so how do we conduct ourselves as christians in real life love and truth love and truth mm -hmm. oh well, that's not enough pastor scott really <laughs> that's how you got saved all right somebody yeah. loved you and told you the truth that's right and there's power in that mm -hmm. we're always looking for the fantastic we're always looking for the supernatural. Folks, we have a supernatural God. Yep. He is supernatural. This book is supernatural. The mm -hmm. truth therein is supernatural. Yeah, for sure. The spirit inside you is supernatural. Yeah. 
Therefore, the love that comes out of you is supernatural, and the truth that you speak is supernatural. So we are to love people, and we are to speak truth to them. And God may lead them to repentance by which they come to their senses and and turn to Christ, and they are delivered from this bondage. You with me? I'm with you. I'm following And so Satan hates love. He hates truth. Now, that is, that is the normative way. Now, there are going to be some cases that you may encounter where someone is possessed by a demon, okay? Mm-hmm. And I fully believe in that, and you do see it. You see it a lot in, in other countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to India. I've seen it in India. Um, I've seen it in the States, too. My father was a pastor when I was a boy. My, we had a case of demon possession in our church. There was a lady. She was not saved. And she, she had a spirit. She had multiple spirits. My father passed her. He got some other pastors over to their house, cast demons. I don't normally share experiential stories, but I, I'm just saying you're not talking to somebody who doesn't believe in this stuff. I believe right. in it, okay? Mm-hmm. I just don't believe it's normative, and I believe that the, the general command that we are to adhere to is love and truth, understanding that you may be called upon to cast out a demon. And in, in such cases, you don't do it uh, in your own power, you do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. Okay, but this is, not, this is not an ongoing ministry of the church that we are called to. We do it as directed by God, okay? All right, what about Christians? Can they be demon-possessed? No. No, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Um, when you're born again, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Okay. We hear that over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Who indwells you when you're born again? The Holy Spirit. Is he going to share that space with any demon? He is not. One of my favorite movies is uh, the first Lord of the Rings movie. Lord of the Rings. Uh, Gandalf, he, he tells Saruman, he says, uh, I got to do my Gandalf voice. Hold on. <clears throat> He's got great voices. There is one Lord of the Rings, and he does not share power. All right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> You've got the Holy Spirit in you, and my friends, he does not share That's power. Good. That's right. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right. Who, who supposedly possesses a person demonically? He that is in the world. Hmm. Well, greater is he that is in the Christian than he that is in the world. He's not going to let him in there, okay? By that spirit, you are washed, you are cleansed. Mm -hmm. What do we call a demon? An unclean spirit. Mm -hmm. The unclean does not inhabit that which has been made clean. Mm -hmm. You have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been regenerated, you have been sealed by the spirit for the day of redemption. Mm -hmm. Has that come yet? No. Mm -hmm. So you are sealed until that day. And there is no spirit outside of the Holy Spirit that can take up residence in you. And so this concept that a demon can inhabit a Christian, I find it abhorrent. I find it an insult. I find it a slap in the face of a holy God. Hmm. And I don't believe it's true. And we will not tolerate it in this church. Okay? Amen. Amen. Sounds good. What impact, this is a great question. It just came out of like, I mean... I don't know. It just is, what, what impact would UFOs or the discovery of an alien life have on Christianity? I mean, that's, I, that's a great, I've never really thought about that, but I mean, what the, if a UFO was discovered or alien life, how does that impact Christianity was a question that was presented. All right. I, I used to love the X-Files. I used to watch the X-Files. Anybody ever watch the X-Files? 
I loved Mulder and Scully and all that. I used to watch that in college. I was a big geek about this stuff. And I honestly, I enjoy watching programs about UFOs. I find it interesting. I find it fascinating. Um, there was a time when I would have maybe listened or agreed with somebody who said, you know, of all the billions of stars and planets in the universe, there's got to be life out there somewhere, right? That's, yeah. that's the argument yeah, that aliens yeah. must exist. Mm-hmm. Life on other planets must exist because there are, look at all the, look at all the stars, look at all the planets, all the things. And the logic is, if you're a Christian and, you, and you're open to that, you might say, why would God go to all the trouble <laughs> of creating all of that if there were not going to be any life out there? And to that I say, what trouble? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what trouble? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, here, here's something I jotted down. Um, uh, what does it say? What does it say? I don't think I jotted it down. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so it's just from Genesis. Look, what, what did God do in the, in the creation days? He created time, space, matter. That's right away. He created water. He created the atmosphere, the land, the seas, the vegetation, plants, trees, the sun, the moon. And then on day four, he creates the two lights, the greater light, the lesser mm-hmm. light. That's sun and the moon. So all of that he creates. And then the next line, and he also made the stars. <laughs> like, and he made the stars too. Right. You know, it's yeah. just like... <laughs> He decided, ah, let's throw some stars out there. You know? He just breathed them in. He just went, yeah. and there yeah. they were. And it's no big deal. Right. It's no big deal for God to do that. He can mm-hmm. do it like that. By the way, I'm not a millions and billions of years age guy. Right. I, I'm a literal six-day creation guy, just full disclosure. But I agree. I, I don't think it's any problem for God. I think God can do whatever he wants. Mm. And so I believe that, uh, yeah, for, for us to be the only life in the universe, I think that's that's... That's, a, that's no problem for me to think that. So mm-hmm. am I adamant that there's no such thing as life elsewhere? I will say I believe in intelligent life other than mankind, and I call it spirit kind. Mm. So yeah. we've just been talking about demons. I got to say uh, all of the UFOs and, and phenomenon and, and abductions that people report and stuff like that, um, it certainly would be just like Satan to use something like that to mask mm-hmm. demonic activity yeah. And to draw us into this, yep. this, this line of thought that there is something out there. Mm-hmm. Look, if you believe as I do that the Lord is coming back for his church and he's going to take us from this place, mm-hmm. call that the rapture, uh, you can imagine that a very easy explanation for that might mm-hmm. be you know, widespread alien abduction, right. something like that. So look, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. I think he can use anything yeah. and everything. I think the greater question was if something were discovered, would it impact Christianity? I don't obsess over stuff like that. Right. Uh, you know, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know they breed quarrels, is what Paul told Timothy. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't uh, pontificate about stuff like that. I don't think anything can defeat the purpose and the message right. in the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, well, and, there you, go. you know, the red letters says it all when Jesus said, I'm the way, yeah. the truth, and the life. Nobody's going to get to the Father except through me. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that's you can right. have all that. I know we probably need to wrap things well, up. We're getting close. So why don't you just pick some that you think are, are oh, really. I, I remember, I, you know, one that seems to pop up often was how can I be sure of my salvation? I'm sure a lot of people have thought that or struggled with that. I remember as a kid struggling with salvation and how can I know, yeah. you know, that, that God is living in. I remember hearing one, you know, in fact, it might've been one of my daughters that, 
you know, after they prayed, she looked up and said, is he in there? You know, how can you know <laughs> that, that he's inside the heart, you know, and how can I be sure of my salvation? Well, can you be sure, I think is where you start. Is it possible to be sure? Uh, and by the way, we're not talking about can you lose your salvation. I think it's a separate question, right? Correct. We're yeah, talking we're, about this how is just, can I be sure yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that I am saved? Well, I, right. think that, I think there are a variety of evidences of a Christian life and all of that. But look, here, here's what I, I want to leave you with. It's the promise that you can know. Mm-hmm. Can know. Some people don't know that you can know. I mean, we, we talked about Calvinism a little bit. So there are some Calvinists, they hold to something called perseverance of the saints, right. which a lot of people say, well, that's eternal security. Uh, sort of. It, it involves eternal security, but I think that it, there's an idea that only the saints will persevere, only the saints will persevere, and only those who persevere will know if they were saints. We're saints, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a denial of assurance. Now, I got to say, I believe that you can know that you know that you know mm-hmm. that you are saved. Mm-hmm. I believe that with all my heart, and here's why. 1 John 5, 11, and, and following, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he says, and I love this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Yeah, there it that is. That you may know. Yep. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And not only do you believe, not just that you believe that intellectually, factually, even the demons believe that and tremble, Paul right. says. Yep. But James. are you trusting in that for your eternity mm-hmm. and have you surrendered your life to that? Mm-hmm. And so I think there are people, and I've met some, and I've, I've wrestled with some on this yeah. issue because they're just constantly doubt. I just don't know, I just don't know, I just don't know. And I keep asking, do you believe, are you trusting in Christ for your eternity? Yes. Right. Do you want to serve him? I do. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there just comes a, a point where you've got to say, I'm not going to doubt in the dark what God showed me in the light. Right, yeah. Yep. Amen? Mm-hmm. He didn't want you to live in fear. Right. He didn't want you to live in doubt. Mm-hmm. He wants you to walk in victory. Yeah. Amen? Yep. He doesn't want you rendered impotent. Uh, the one causing you to doubt is not Christ. Right, exactly. The one who causing yeah. you to doubt is the one who wants you to be a, a, a puddle mm-hmm. in this world and just completely weak and, yep. and incapable of leading anyone else. Right. Into as, the ark of And safety. as you said before, he's the liar. He wakes up every day to that's lie to right. us. And if we can believe a lie, then he's got us where he wants oh, us. And that that's is... why we need the truth every day to get, our, get in front of our face, to, to know the truth of what God says, and then it changes how we live our lives. That is absolutely his MO. He gets in your ear, and he just, you know, he's a tempter, and he's an accuser. That's Satan. Mm-hmm. He's a tempter, and he's an accuser. He can't make you do nothing, mm-hmm. but he can tempt you. Mm-hmm. And then when you fail... He lays on the guilt. Yeah. And that, that ain't the Holy Spirit doing that. That right. is your adversary doing that. Mm. You are such a scum. You are such a sinner. Mm. You worthless mm-hmm. sinner. Yeah. God could never love you. you a, a true Christian would never do what mm. you did. God's done with you. you God's can't... done with you. Yeah. Yeah. He's turning his back on you right now. Yeah. This is his MO. Yeah. And it's all to render you uh, impotent for Christ, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's not God's will for your life. You need to walk as conquerors. We're called to be more than conquerors, Romans Amen. 8. That's right. Amen? Absolutely. Amen. And we can be that. Well, do we have time for one more, or you think we probably ought to Would wrap it up? you pick one more? Just do one more. One okay. more? All right, one more. Hi. 
Should I go with this? I'm going to go with this one. Do all, go- do all dogs go to heaven? Oh, <laughs> do animals have souls and are they in heaven? <laughs> this is not a great one to end on, but I wanted to see your face when I asked that question. That's really why I asked. Is that really the question? <laughs> that, let's, let's do it. Let's That's do it. the question. Do, yeah. do animals go to heaven? Yeah, do animals, have, do animals have souls? Was the question? Do, do animals well, have well, souls? It's a two-part question. Do animal, I, I wrote in. Do all dogs? Go all to dogs heaven? go to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did that. It's part. a great movie. Nobody asked that question. I just wanted. So, do animal? The, the question was: Do animals have souls, and are they in heaven? Do animals have souls, and do animals go to heaven? Are they in heaven? Are yeah. they in heaven? Yeah. Are they in heaven? Okay, mm. now that's that's interesting. Yeah, are that they could in be a different. All right, let's t- let's take the first part. Do animals have souls? Uh, not like people. Not like people. What, what constitutes a soul? Well, the only creature that is spoken of as being capable of being redeemed, and that, that has a direct correlation to your soul, the only creature capable of being redeemed is mankind. In the image he made them. Yes. But if you define soul, as many do, as, as being made of intellect, will, and emotion... I think some of us look at our pets and we feel like, well, they've got that. Yeah. <laughs> they've certainly got intellect. They've got a will. Yeah, for sure. Dude, we moved into our new house in Elon. <laughs> My dog, this place was pristine. This dear woman had, had kept this house in mint condition. Man. White carpet. White, you saw it. <laughs> yeah. Snow white carpet. My dog immediately goes in there, squats. Marks her territory, man. <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> she's never done that before, but she's like, "This is mine," and uh, you know, and she, and she knew she and she knew because we would go, "Penny, head went down," you know, and you guys can relate, right? So I, people look at that and they go, "Well, that's a soul, right?" Mm. I would say animals. Some animals have soul. What I would say are soulish characteristics. Okay, they they have these. They have these features that are uh, indicative of something soulish, mm. all right? We know animals have the breath of life. Uh, are they of a nature that they would be, that God would see fit to have them in heaven? Well, we're not talking about cats, right? Because cats... <laughs> I mean, that's demon spawn Sh- right Cheryl, there. Cheryl, stop that's listening. Just, Cheryl, Cheryl Bradshaw is, needs to stop listening. Oh, sorry, Cheryl. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a product of the fall right there. That is, that's, that's some Nephilim stuff going on. Uh, so, but, but like, I think like, you know, horses and dogs, right? Are they in heaven? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. We know, here's what we know. I don't know about heaven. Uh, I can tell you this, in the kingdom, and by the kingdom, I mean the next age. I mean the millennial kingdom where we are on the earth. And, uh, and the righteous are ruling Amen. on the earth. Yeah. We know there will be animals there because it speaks of it. It says, and, and they, it will be like Eden. The wolf will lay down with the lamb, Scripture says. Mm. Uh, the, a child will play in the den of adders, mm. snakes. So they will not, they will not harm us. Mm. The point is there will be peace, harmony, and yes, animal. animals are for our pleasure Okay, prior to the fall, Adam had perfect communion with all of them. Right. It wasn't until after sin entered the world that mm-hmm. some of them would threaten to eat you. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by the grace of God, some of them are, are still friendly and, and enjoyable by us, mm-hmm. but they are blessings to mankind. We have dominion over them. They are for our pleasure, so I, they will definitely be in the kingdom. Will they be in heaven beyond the kingdom? Scripture does not say, mm-hmm. except that I had a dear friend who lost a horse recently, and uh, it was very tragic. Uh, somebody was driving erratically, pulled out in front of them. They were pulling their trailer. They'd just come back from a show or something. And the trailer mm. flipped, and, and the horse's leg was severed, and they had to put this beautiful animal down, and she was just devastated. Mm. And I wanted to comfort her, and I, I wrote to her, and I said, I said, you know, I, as a pastor, I get asked if, if pets will be in, in heaven, and I don't know. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Right. But um, I said, the only instance of the heavenlies, the heavenlies, where you see an animal it's of our Savior riding a horse. Mm-hmm. And so I just shared that with her, yeah. and of course yeah. that, that lifted her spirit. Yeah, sure. I don't know, guys, I don't know, but I do know that, that, uh, that God created animals. They are for our enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, I think they are a reflection of heaven. Uh, when you see every description of angels is reminiscent for us of, of, of the animal kingdom. You know, you, look, you read some of the prophetic books, they've got... You know, there's a face of an ox and a face of an eagle and a face of a lion. Mm. And, you know, Christ is called the Lion of Judah. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the animal kingdom, as God made it, God intended it, is often associated with heavenly concepts. Right. Mm-hmm. And so part of me believes that the... Now, will our specific pets be in heaven? Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. I got a few I sure wish would be there. Yeah. And I sure. want that, but I don't know. Yep. I'd probably talk more about that than I did Calvinism. <laughs> It's a lot more fun. (laughs) Hey, have you guys enjoyed this tonight? Yeah. All right. Yeah.